Okay, there we go. So um, we're continuing this study in Wounded Healer, part five. And uh, we're gonna take a look at the subject of vulnerability tonight. And so when you hear the word vulnerability, uh, I don't know if you see that as a positive or a negative thing, but what is the first thing uh, that comes to your mind when you hear the word vulnerability? Any first impressions? Exposed, okay. What's that, Mark? Open, okay. Open, exposed, all right. Anything else? Okay, so, so what we wanna talk about tonight is vulnerable courage. And those are two words that we might not think go together, but uh, I think it's displayed in the person of Christ as well as some other personalities that we find in the Bible. Uh, I wanna talk a little bit about this being a way that we uh, touch the wounds of Christ and find ourselves uh, touched by his life and by his uh, power as well. So as we move through it, um, if you have your handout that I sent out, uh, let's introduce it this way. Um, the pain in our lives shapes us one way or another. I don't think we ever go through times of suffering and pain where we come out the other side the same. And uh, hopefully that pain or that suffering doesn't define us in the long term, but hopefully as difficult as pain and suffering is, we hope that uh, on the other side of it, that we grow. And most of all, I hope we understand how much we are beloved by God. And even though at times we might question the will of God. There are times that I think when we look on the other side of it, we know that we wouldn't have gotten through the set of circumstances that we were in without the help of God. So um, I guess the place to begin with vulnerable courage to move ahead through pain and through suffering is starts with knowing who we are and whose we are. And when we begin to realize that, we can uh, take certain steps in the right direction to face our fears, face our pains with courage. And I think Jesus shows us a lot of what it means to step into the hurts that he experienced in his own life. Yet, I think he understood that uh, he was in an un unbreakable relationship with God the Father, and uh, that core identity seemed to saturate everything that he did. So when we, um, when we relate to God, sometimes uh, we are faced with his unknowable love for us or his unknowable power to get us through a set of circumstances. Um, and when we are in those situations, we do feel very vulnerable and when we think about the life of Christ and we put our own um, set of circumstances up against his, I think what we find is the fact that God was willing to become a man, that's called the incarnation, helps us to see up close uh, the beauty that um, of God's love for us. And um, so that's kind of how I want to introduce our thoughts tonight. And then I want to talk a little bit about... Um, beautiful vulnerability. So I'd like to begin, first of all, with um, the incarnation itself. 
when we think about our own birth, uh, where we were born, when we were born, uh, we are all born into a complex set of choices and circumstances. I think uh, if you were born during the days of the Great Depression, uh, there's still residue that uh, has shaped you. I uh, was talking with Esty the other day and she asked me the question, why is your dad still so cheap about so many things? Always looking for the best um, buy, even though it's not maybe the wisest purchase because sometimes you get what you pay for. And I said to her, I said, I think a lot of that goes back to his childhood, uh, raised by a single mother. For a while, they lived on the top floor of a dance hall because they didn't have their own apartment. Uh, that was during the days of the Great Depression. And I think a lot of that um, was kind of ingrained within him uh, that you always had to uh, watch what you used, how much you used, et cetera, that type of thing. And um, when, when we look at our own lives and your lives and our, uh, my life can be very different depending upon where and when you were born, not, uh, there are certain sets of circumstances that I think shape us, whether we realize it or not, whether it's positive or negative. But sometimes I don't think we fully appreciate when God became a man, he was born into a complex set of circumstances that also shaped him as well. If he is fully human, uh, we understand that his upbringing by Mary and Joseph uh, was um, shaping him as a young man. We know that uh, as he gets closer to his earthly ministry, he resonates with God's calling upon his life. And we're going to look at uh, that when it comes to fruition, uh, as he goes into the desert to be tempted. But uh, Jesus enters a, a vulnerable world. Um, the Jewish people in particular are in a very complex set of circumstances, being under oppression by the Roman Empire. And um, when we think about um, Jesus being born into that situation where Caesar and the Roman Empire is at the center of everything, um, I think what we find is that he also dealt with that in a unique situation. It kind of shaped how he looked at the world. And I think also the way he had this kindred spirit with people that were poor, uh, people that didn't have any uh, sense of um, a power or at times self-esteem. And uh, so this beautiful vulnerability of Jesus is he steps into the human race. He's human in every single way possible. And when we think about Almighty God taking upon himself this vulnerability, there's also some insecurities that go along with that because it doesn't take long before Mary and Joseph will have to flee to Egypt to escape the uh, genocide that's initiated by King Herod. So I don't know if you've ever thought of that. I think we do on Christmas itself, uh, being born in a manger, that type of thing. But Overall, his entire infancy and toddlerhood is shaped by the set of circumstances that he found himself in. And it's in that beautiful vulnerability, I think we can relate and connect 
uh, that he understands our set of circumstances as well. So his wounds touch our wounds if we're experiencing negative things because he was fully human. Any thoughts on that? Comments on that? So our first uh, scripture passage tonight uh, that I want us to think about is in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul himself uh, had uh, certain insecurities uh, about his own calling, defending his apostleship, that type of thing. Uh, there's all kinds of insecurities that make us vulnerable. Uh, and those could be things as dire as food insecurity or financial insecurity. But a lot of times it can be emotional and social insecurity. And I think that's what we have here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it'd be worth reading uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 21 to chapter 12, verse 10. So let's uh, start there. As Paul is thinking about his own world, and he's thinking about defending his calling by God uh, to be an apostle, he really goes over the top in 2 Corinthians uh, to show this. So Come on down to verse 20. Uh, it says, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. So what Paul's saying is I could have really uh, powered up and claimed my apostleship and force that upon you. However, I stepped into weakness. And um, then he goes on and he talks about some of the insecurities that he experienced that then become actually not only his security in Christ, but all, also his strength. So it goes on, it says, what anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Then he has parentheses. I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And then he begins to talk about what he went through. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I had been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. 
in Damascus, the governor under King uh, Artus had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in a wall and slipped through his hands. And then he keeps going into the next chapter. I must go on boasting. You would think that that would be enough, wouldn't you? Uh, he goes, although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my powers made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Whew. Boy, that's not a mouthful. That's a lifetime full. Um, when you think of all that he went through and he prefaced it by saying, I could boast about the fact that I was called by Christ. I met him on the Damascus road. He made me an apostle, et cetera, et cetera. But he'd rather boast about all of these things. And as he did so, the bottom line was he found greater strength in his weaknesses than in his strengths. And that is a, man, that's an irony there, isn't it? Because I think most of us like to run away from our weakness and insecurities. Um, and uh, many of us like to project ourselves to be strong rather than weak. Uh, but that was the argument that Paul had about his legitimacy as an apostle, and that is his weaknesses rather than his strengths. And he just kind of does a journal entry there that could have stopped, you know, just a few verses in, but he just keeps belaboring the point so that we will get the point. And the point is found in chapter 12, when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my powers made perfect in weakness. Let's explore that a little bit. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that you had found greater security and strength in your weaknesses rather than in your strengths? Have, have any of you ever experienced that at all? I don't think we, I don't think we open up enough to share the weaknesses that we have, because in this world, you know, weakness is a negative. And um, what we're finding here is somehow Christ meets us in the 
in that those moments of weakness and uh, vulnerability. And uh, he he can't really teach us uh, to be strong until maybe we realize how much strength that we need. Now, physically, I think a lot of times people have had illnesses or episodes where they have felt physical weakness um, and, and that type of thing. And people rally around that and say, oh, you were so strong during that time of trial. But have you noticed, um, usually that's only physical weaknesses. Uh, if people share emotional weaknesses, they, they fight with worry, anxiety, uh, depression, that type of thing. Um, it, it's not met always with the same, boy, you were so courageous, you fought hard, you worked through that, that type of thing, until that person is already way over on the other side and has become strong, then people will begin to say, oh, you really did a good job. But while they're in the middle of the weakness, a lot of times there's a sense of embarrassment. Um, there is a sense of shame, maybe. What did you do wrong? That type of thing. So let me open it up. Do you have any thoughts on any of that? Comments on any of that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark just said he thinks that we look to God more in our times of insecurity and weakness than when we do in our strength. And I think a lot of times when things are going well, um, there could be a tendency for us to forget God, move on. Uh, and, you know, many times that whole idea of a foxhole prayer, you know, when we really find ourselves in the battle can be true that um, we don't realize um, how much we need God on the day-to-day -day basis, even when we're going through good times. Um, but that that is something that I think is true in our times of weakness. We cry out to God. Uh, that's reflected in so many of the Psalms that we read um, and that type of thing. So that's true. In our weakness, it does cause us to look up. Other thoughts? Yeah, the emotional weakness. He was already experiencing. So I don't know if you heard that or not. Our nephew has had. Um, over the years, a number of emotional uh, battles um, that he went through, anxieties and things like that. And what Esty said is, ironically, during that time, many of his Christian college-age friends um, deserted him because I don't, you know, rather than rallying around him and helping him, uh, they they kind of forgot him and went on. And I don't know what the rationale is behind that, uh, whether it exposes our own weaknesses or not, but um, that's what happened to him. And um, so ironically enough, he still loves the Lord deeply, serves the Lord over at a church on the west side of Cleveland. Um, 
but uh, I'll tell you that that can be heartbreaking when people drop you because um, because you're going through a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. So what Mark was saying, if you couldn't hear online, is that um, a lot of times with the emotional side of things, uh, you don't know what to do or what to say. Whereas if if it's food insecurity or financial insecurity, uh, you can reach into your pocket and help financially or, you know, uh, food cards or buy meals or whatever it may be, um, make meals and take it over. So I think that's true, Mark. I think that a lot of times we don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Go ahead, Essie. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, you know, being afraid to be with the person, but you just ostracize them if they're lepers or something. Yeah. So uh, Essie was just elaborating a little bit and saying uh, that our nephew, um, it, it wasn't a matter of uh, people not knowing what to say. It was actually active uh, ostracizing. So when these friends were getting married, uh, he wasn't given an invitation to come to their wedding, even though they had been friends for years and years since they were, you know, uh, small, uh, smaller kids, you know, so yeah, that's a shame for sure. Other thoughts? Yeah, right. As she said, people don't see emotional pain. And uh, so a lot of times um, the legitimacy of emotional pain is not taken as seriously. Well, I think it's also too, they're afraid that whatever your emotional problem is, is contagious. Okay. I belong to a, a group on Facebook, um, Compassionate Friends, the Loss of an Adult Child. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people there complain that their friends have all just disappeared. And it seems to be that they're, you know, afraid, look, it happened to you. It could happen to me. And I, I haven't observed. Do you think, but I think. You uh, kind of, you kind of froze there, Shelly, the last couple of things you said. You don't think about it ever happening to you. And I think that's why they have stepped back from people. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's an element of superstition there of some, some way that, you know, if it could happen to, to them, it could happen to me. I mean, Oh yeah. 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 So, any other thoughts? That's very good input. Very good. 
Okay, let's go to the next uh, thing here. Um, so I'm gonna move us down here so I can see this quote here. Um, Brene Brown uh, has a definition of vulnerability. She uh, says vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. And that uh, is found on page 34 of her uh, book uh, that's called Daring Greatly, uh, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. And that uh, was put out in 2012. Uh, so, um, Brene Brown um, devotes a whole book to this subject that we're touching upon tonight. And um, it might be a good read. I, I, I haven't read it. I just came across this quote that I think is helpful. But uh, anyways, um, let's move on. So let's come back to the birth of Christ for a moment. So when we think about him being born into a certain set of circumstances, um, in many ways, his birthday is very subversive to the things that are going on around him. Um, weakness isn't something we naturally attribute to strength, uh, but Paul got that message. That's why we looked at 2 Corinthians. But uh, there goes against the grain of common experiences I have there, um, which is perhaps one of the reasons the message of Jesus is uh, so compelling. Uh, it goes against the grain of common experience. And Christmas is the birth announcement of a humble king who beckons us to reorient our lives for sacrificial loving humanity well. Um, and so in this complex set of circumstances, when we think about the beginning of Jesus' life and uh, his upbringing, um, it shaped his heart. It shaped uh, how he would later conduct his earthly ministry. And in many ways, it, um, it demonstrates to us what a life well-lived is all about. And um, so when we look at a subversive birthday, that's in context of Caesar being on the throne. So I want us to just keep that in mind. Um, I want us to look at Luke chapter two uh, for a second. If you wanna to go to Luke chapter two, this is uh, one of two birth narratives that we find in the gospel accounts. And normally we don't look at it any other time, but at Christmas time. But I think for tonight, um, we can see that more than just God becoming man and any entering into the human experience, his birth in many ways is subversive um, to the world and context that he is raised in. So let's read the first seven verses. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. 
So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, in those first seven verses, um, let's pick out all the vulnerable components for a moment. So what do you observe in this paragraph um, that represents vulnerability? What jumps out at you? Well, you don't have to go too far. Uh, far. Uh, let's look at the word Caesar Augustus. Okay, so Caesar Augustus um, is the idea of not, it's more than a time stamp for the birth of Jesus. It is telling us that Jesus is born into a world that is dominated uh, by an emperor. So this emperor is in control, and we're told here that he issues a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now that just tends to go right over our head, but let's stop for a moment. What is the purpose of a census? What's the purpose of a census? Okay. How many people? Counting how many people? Allocation of resources. Okay. Keep going. What else? Collection of taxes. That's exactly right, Brenda. So the reason Caesar Augustus is issuing a decree is not so much to see how many people are out there, but how much money he can, he can obtain. So you already have a vulnerable group of people that are quite poor. And uh, when they hear the word census, I don't think the first thing that comes to their mind is, oh, great, they're counting the number of people so that they'll have the right amount of resources that are needed for the populace. Actually, it is just the opposite. They're taking another census. What does that mean? Taxes are going up, okay? Uh, taxes are gonna go up. So the first vulnerable thing in the life of Christ is you already have a very young mother uh, and uh, these are individuals that don't seem to have a, a whole lot. Uh, they're a hardworking group. Verse four, take a look. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth. Okay, here's another vulnerability. Nazareth is not a very big, big place. It's a village. Uh, it's probably only got maybe a hundred people or so that live in it. It's very small. And so uh, we know that Jesus and Joseph are in the, um, in the trades, uh, but they would have to walk a considerable distance each uh, day to go to Sepphoris, a city along the coast that would need their uh, trade uh, in the building of that city. So uh, jo Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth. That's telling us something. It's telling us a little bit about his backdrop. It's telling us 
that he's trying to make ends meet. He's not rich by any means. Um, so you have a young mother. Um, Mary is possibly a teenager when she gives birth. Uh, Joseph uh, is a tradesman. Um, and then they have to travel, notice what it says here, to Bethlehem. There's a vulnerability there, okay? Uh, Mary, number one, is pregnant. You probably shouldn't be riding a horse or a mule uh, down to Bethlehem from Nazareth. Um, uh, they probably couldn't afford it, uh, secondly, uh, but they were required to do so because the lineage of Joseph was from the line of David. Um, the, uh, it says Joseph was pledged, uh, um, uh, rather Mary was pledged to Joseph to be married to him, expecting a child. Um, as they travel, the time came for the baby to be born. Just the time stamp there that she is at the point where she needs to deliver. And where is she going to deliver this boy? Um, and then it tells us that there's no room in the inn. So there's not an adequate lodging place. There's not an adequate birthing room. So you can see right from the very start, everything about Jesus is being born into vulnerability and um as a result of that, what we find is it doesn't take much longer. You don't find this in Luke's gospel, but you do in Matthew's. When Herod hears about the birth of this child, that's probably a toddler by the time news comes from uh, the Magi, where's the one born king of the Jews, that he sets out this genocidal decree to kill all the young boys. Um, and and they have to flee. And where do they have to flee? They have to flee all the way down to Egypt and they have to stay there until Herod dies and then they can come back to their hometown. So all of this I think is reflective of the fact that when we're thinking about vulnerability and we're thinking about the wounds of Christ uh, and by his wounds we are healed, the very first thing that we notice is that um, for God to become a man, he's not born into royalty. He's not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's not born with a lot of resources. Um, and that helps him to identify with many of the populace, uh, populace uh, that are under the Roman Empire. And um, it kind of shapes much of how he he looks at people with great compassion and gives to them mercy does that that make all that make sense is that making connection okay so what is the message hidden in the manger um it just might be power is not what you think it is and when you contrast christ and caesar of course, Caesar is going to embody the idea of power. Uh, just a little bit of background about Caesar. He's the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Um, uh, and he, he goes to war in 31 BCE um, and then becomes the ruler of the Roman Empire uh, by ending that war that he was involved, in, involved with. 
he was proclaimed to be a peacemaker. Um, so how many of you have been following the story uh, over the past couple of days of the newest skirmish between uh, the Arabs and the Jews? Have you been following that story at all? Okay. Uh, the Palestinians and the Jews, there's more conflict that's going on. Um, Hamas sent some rockets into Israel that hit a bus. And of course, the Israelis uh, retaliated and they took down a 12-story building. Uh, I don't know what the casualty count is at this point. Uh, but uh, the point is, um, in all of this, if there's somebody that can step into this situation and, and cause a, a ceasefire, uh, that person will be hailed as a peacemaker. Well, that's what happened to Caesar Augustus. He was considered to be a peacemaker because he got the war to end. And the way they celebrated that, that was a reflection all through the empire were uh, coins that had his name inscripted on it. Uh, some of those inscriptions declared him to be the son of God. Uh, he was uh, given this name Augustus, which means the uh, venerable one, the one that is to be exalted. He um, brought a state of general prosperity to Roman citizens. Unfortunately, that didn't trickle down. Trickle down economics didn't work back then either. Uh, never really reached the poor. Um, so when you hear the a lot of the language that is used in the uh, Gospels, the declaration of good news, in many ways, it's a redefining the very verbiage that was often used by the Roman Empire. So it was considered good news uh, that Caesar Augustus was on the throne, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it was only really good news for a certain group of people, Roman citizens, and out of them, the elite. You contrast that with Jesus. Jesus comes in as a baby born in a marginal town, a small little place, uh, Bethlehem. Um, God's kingdom doesn't come at the center of power or wealth, but really does come on the margins of insecurity. Uh, Jesus really didn't have any interest in the sort of power that was celebrated by the Romans. And uh, he humbly, uh, you know, embraces vulnerability. And um, that's not just how he's born, but that's how he lives his life. Um, that's how he is buried and um, but then venerated through the resurrection. The last point here, Jesus started with insecure communities to model the power of vulnerability. Uh, Caesar wanted everyone to know just what a big deal he was. In contrast, Jesus was born in vulnerable conditions to be reared by vulnerable parents. A Bethlehem birth um, shows us that the world's one true king turns the idea of rulership upside down. This is the one uh, that came to rule by servanthood um, rather than demanding uh, he be served. So just, I thought the birth narrative kind of illustrates from the very get-go uh, the vulnerability that Christ embraced in becoming man. Thoughts, comments, questions there?
So here's kind of the big idea. Jesus embraced vulnerability to unite with those who are vulnerable. Um, Jesus did not become incarnate and face human vulnerability simply to be a sacrifice for sin. It surely includes that, but it is his choice to take on human existence that unites with all of mankind, not just one section of mankind. So here's a thought um, that comes from uh, a follower of Christ called Maximus the Confessor. He lived from 580 to 662. He says, the cosmos is an appearance of God. Humanity is the image of God, but Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God. And I think those are three great points uh, that he makes. So he models sol uh, human solidarity um, by doing what every human is invited to do. And that is to face life head on and to face the difficulties and to embrace the fact that uh, weakness becomes strength when God is in the middle of it with us. Any thoughts there? So I wanna look at one more passage in the time we have remaining. You're in Luke chapter two, just go over a couple of pages. And you're going to find yourself in Luke chapter four. So we know that Jesus was baptized uh, by John the Baptist, but immediately after his baptism, uh, he goes into the wilderness uh, to be uh, tempted by Satan. And within this temptation, there are three uh, lies that uh, are tempting him. Uh, one of them is in verse three, one is in verse five, and one is in verse nine. And it tells us here uh, in verse one, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized. And he was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. So this is a prolonged experience that he is going through. Um, in his encounter, uh, what we find is he is relying upon God, and that's part of his identity shaping uh, in the love of God. He steps into that moment. He is trusting God for the power to persevere in the midst of all that. So let's imagine that he is feeding on God's love for 40 days, even while he is fasting from food. You'll see there a quote from Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard um, once wrote, the wilderness, the place of solitude and deprivation, was actually the place of strength and strengthening for our Lord. Comes out of his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, page 101 and 102. In other words, he's trying to say the desert is the place where Jesus is strong. Um, Jesus shows that it's entirely possible to uh, step into scarce circumstances and overcome them with an abundance of spirit. So each time Jesus is tempted while in the wilderness, uh, Jesus will appeal to the provision of God. So let's take a look at these real quick. So lie number one is you don't have enough bread. Take a look, verse three. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. 
Jesus answers, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. So he's tempted to, um, to turn a rock into bread. And in a rock is meant to be a rock. A rock is not meant to be a loaf of bread. So there's kind of this disorientation with the created order. But what the accuser is trying to get Jesus to do is to fall into the trap of kind of being disoriented. He knows that uh, he's been in close uh, relationship with God for 40 days, and yet he's hungry. And because he is hungry, he is trying to use that to disorient him. Um, this fast of Jesus wasn't to brag about uh, to other people. It was one of those spirits of the disciplines that Dallas Willard, Willard talks about to, um, to commune upon God. And then secondly, you'll know some sub points there, Jesus sought to identify with the poor and hungry people living under Roman occupation. And secondly, Jesus refused to exploit creation to make his situation more convenient or bearable. And um, so he says, man does not live by bread alone. So temptation number one is you don't have enough bread. Temptation number two is you don't have enough power. You don't have enough power. So verse five, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it is it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. So here's the temptation. Um, the lie is uh, to grasp for the power of the kingdoms of this world um, to take a to take it uh, for his own use and pleasure um, but Jesus answers it is written it, worship the Lord your God and serve him only uh, most of these responses are quotes out of the book of Deuteronomy uh, if you have a study Bible you'll see the cross references there uh, this one comes out of Deuteronomy 6.13. So a couple of points on your handout. This is a lie that Satan is proposing to disrupt shalom since uh, it's offering a disoriented relationship to other people. So the first one is a disoriented relationship with creation. I'll turn tables into steaks and I'll turn rocks into bread that type of thing. But this one is toward other people because if you're going to grasp for power, there's somebody that's going to be the victims of that power grab. So uh, this all-powerful God doesn't flex his strength by obtaining power in the usual ways of humanity, but by serving others and sacrifice uh, and sacrificial love. And the third one is um, you don't have enough security. So verse nine, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So notice what the accuser is doing. 
He sees that Jesus is quoting uh, from the scriptures. And so he decides that he is going to quote from the scriptures. He's quoting out of Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But Jesus then responds and says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. So in this one, uh, I guess um, the lie is the disruption of shalom uh, by offering a disoriented relationship to God. And that is, I'm not going to trust God. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Um, and uh, Jesus interprets the devil's invitation as an encouragement to question God's faithfulness toward him. So the way I kind of put it here is three temptations, a disorientation toward creation, a disorientation uh, toward other people, and a disorientation toward God. And I think those three elements are the same areas that we are often tempted by uh, or disoriented by. And in our vulnerability, um, in those moments of insecurity, we can fall prey to these temptations unless we really understand that uh, God, even though uh, it, there are things that are going on in our life that we wish were not going on, God has not left us. He's walking with us and he's actually giving us his power even through our own weakness. So I hope that kind of brings a full circle of where we began in the Bible study. Let's open it up and see if you have some other questions comments, uh, insights uh, on any of this. So the title of this Bible study was Vulnerable Courage. So vulnerability requires courage, doesn't it? Because And it's something that we don't often want to do. And yet at the same time, hopefully what you saw through the incarnation, through the things we read about Paul and uh, what we just looked at at Christ's temptation in the wilderness is just a beginning of uh, illustrations that we could turn to to show us that those individuals that were vulnerable found that God uh, uh, was sufficient in the midst of those uh, situations. Any thoughts, comments, questions on that? Okay. Well, that's what I have for us tonight, uh, and um, uh, hopefully you'll take some time to kind of ponder some of these passages we looked at, and we'll pick up next week from there. Thank you. It was good. Good story. Good package. It was, you know, I think. Good. Hopefully it was helpful. It was. Well, I hope you have some, uh, some great days ahead the rest of this week, and uh, We'll see you online on Sunday for sure, okay? Have a good night, everybody. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Good night. Bye. 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 Bye.